Chapter 7 In Step with the Spirit Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4 through 4. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Galatians 5, verses 24 through 26. We've looked so far at three marks of spiritual substance. The first, sacrificial love, is the queen of the marks of substance. The second, the mind of Christ, gives us clarity on what holy love really is. Third, living free of the flesh's compulsion and the law's limiting coercion is the only way to live in real love, and for that, we need virtuous freedom forged by gospel convictions. All of this is still lacking one critical element. None of this makes any reference to God's empowering presence with us. How does God animate and empower the mind of Christ in us? How do we navigate the journey of daily improvising in a world full of change, ambiguity, and uncertainty? The answer is that God has not left us alone but has given himself to be with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 17. In fact, God's Spirit is the immediate agent in both our coming to faith and our growth in spiritual substance. Once you have eyes to see the work of the Holy Spirit, you will see him everywhere in the Bible and in your life. Much of what the Spirit does precedes our conversion. The Spirit is the one who first opens our mind and heart to Christ by awakening us, illuminating the truth of the gospel, and convicting us of the reality of sin and our need of God and His Christ. The Holy Spirit does the miracle of regeneration that creates new spiritual life in place of our spiritual deadness. He assures us that, in faith, we have been accepted and are united with Christ. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit not just to remind us about Him, or even to be with us, but to be in us. Through the work of Christ, God's Spirit is in us, uniting us spiritually with Christ, in whom the Father gives us all things. So what about after our conversion? Does the Spirit just speak up when we're doing something wrong? Does He just drop a little moral guilt into our conscience so we feel conviction? No. The Bible says that we are to live by the Spirit. Romans 8.4 says that we do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Just as the compulsions of the flesh drove our lives before conversion, Ephesians 2 verse 3, now the leading of the Spirit fills our minds and drives our desires. Romans 8 continues, Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
they do not belong to Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 5b, 6, and 9. The Father demonstrates holy, self-sacrificial love by preparing salvation, giving His Christ, and pouring out His Spirit. In Christ's life, teaching death and resurrection, He gives the mind of Christ to all who will believe in Him. All who receive Christ and are renewed in God's self-sacrificial love are filled with and led by the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ have the Spirit of Christ. Those who have the mind of Christ have their minds set on what Christ's Spirit desires. If you only want a little of God, all this comprehensiveness will be off-putting and overwhelming. But if you long for spiritual substance, to receive everything God has for you and can do in you, then the comprehensiveness of His salvation brings overwhelming joy. The Nature of Control Humans typically seek happiness in two ways. One is by following the compulsion of the flesh. This is the life of libertines, seeking gratification and pleasure. The second is by living for approval, seeking to be justified in the eyes of others. These people live under the coercion of laws. If they are religious, they believe that if they obey God, then He will love them. If they are irreligious, they believe that if they obey others, others will love them, and they will love themselves. These are the lives of self-gratification and self-justification, respectively, which are both forms of self-glorification. Some people focus on gratification, and others focus mainly on justification. But most of us want the benefits of both. We don't just want the pleasure of sensual gratification, we also want the gratification of moral justification. We act as though doing what we want is a virtue, and we push this as far as we think other people will let us go before they call our bluff. These two ways of operating lead to slavery and destruction. When we strive for self-justification, we will fall short of even the small and meager set of laws we establish for ourselves. This will lead to pride, hypocrisy, or self-hatred. Since we will necessarily fail, we must either blind ourselves or elevate ourselves by judging others more harshly, which is self-glorification. Otherwise, we would have to admit that we have failed even the smallest moral test that we have concocted for ourselves. It has always been Jesus' intention to lead us away from self-justification, self-gratification, and self-glorification, and He offers in Himself a new way to true justification, gratification, and glorification. All human lifestyles and philosophies have tried to satisfy all three of these human longings. This quest is not special to religion. Yet only Christ has the power to deliver them if we will trust Him. Denying the flesh, obeying the law, loving our neighbor, and embracing our freedom. We have looked closely at Galatians 5 because it brings together so much of what spiritual substance looks like. Galatians 1-4 through re-clarifies the gospel. Only through faith in Christ can we be justified and receive the freedom for which Christ set us free. Chapter 5 begins with, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Then, in verses 13 through 17a, Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. 
love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Through the gospel, Christ is calling us to deny the flesh, know and obey the spirit of the law, love our neighbor as ourselves, and embrace the freedom for which Christ has set us free. How in the world are we supposed to do all of this? Is there some uniting principle to all this? Yes, and it's fairly simple. Paul is telling us the single principle by which we can do all the things Christ is calling us to do, to walk, to live by the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, you won't live by the flesh. If you live by the Spirit, you will love your neighbor and so fulfill all of the law. If you live by the Spirit, you can have real fellowship with unity with other Christians. All Christian spirituality is by the Spirit. In Christ, that's really the definition of spirituality. Something spiritual is that which is done by the grace of God through His Spirit. And this is why Paul uses the rest of chapter 5 to explain to us how to do this. Keeping in Step with the Spirit The earliest Christians didn't have a whole Bible. In fact, Galatians 5 may have been the only instruction on life and the Spirit that the Galatian Christians had in writing. So Paul gave them very clear ways to live by the Spirit. By setting our minds on the Spirit in this way, every day we will do what he calls keeping in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. In order to live our entire lives by the Spirit, we have to intentionally stay in step with Him in every minute of every day. I remember running behind my brother in the deep snow of New York winters. I was younger than he and his friends, and I would tire out right away running through deep snow. The only way I could keep up with him was by putting my boots in the holes he made in the snow right in front of me. If I kept in step with where he stepped, I could move faster, farther, and more freely than I ever could on my own. The same is true with following someone while hiking or running. If you focus on matching them step for step, even placing your foot where they place theirs, you'll stay right with them. More than that, focusing on matching their stride will energize your pace, guide you to secure footing, and focus your mind. This strategy breaks even a long hike down into one step after another. And when you focus on the step right in front of you, you reach the summit before you know it. If we are going to live by the Spirit, the only way to reach our goal is to walk with Him all the time. If we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Elements of Keeping in Step with the Spirit Paul gives us five basic elements of living by the Spirit in Galatians 5. There is so much more to learn about the work of the Spirit but these are the most important things to remember daily in order to keep in step with Him. Number one, hope for real righteousness. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Galatians 5.5 5. Our longings are one of the most revealing things about us. What is your greatest longing? Pause and think about that seriously before you hear any more. God has a goal for us in salvation, something for which He has redeemed us. He has redeemed us by Christ and given us the righteousness of Christ as a sheer gift. But the gift is also a seed. 
The completed righteousness of Christ that saves and justifies us is the same seed that grows a new righteousness in us. If we have been awakened in Christ to the glory and beauty of Christ's righteousness, and if we realize that we have been called to it, we will long for the righteous character of Christ to be formed in us. This is not a new moralism, and it cannot lead to self-justification or bragging of any kind. By faith, we eagerly await this transformation. It comes to us through the Spirit, and it is something for which we hope. We will not be able to take credit for this future righteousness. Our ultimate righteousness of character will be as much a gift of grace as the righteousness that is credited to us the moment we believe in Christ. The fact that we will not have earned it should not make us long for it any less. It should make our hope burn all the brighter as we wait with bated breath for all we can receive through the Spirit. If we are following in the footsteps of the Spirit, He will lead us to this eager anticipation, this longing to be made like Christ. When we see the truth, beauty, nobility, and incredible value of this righteousness for which we were created, we will burn with longing for it through the Spirit. Number two, express faith through love. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, which is a law, nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We talked about sacrificial love in chapter 3. Holy love is at the heart of God's activity, and holy love will always be headed in the same direction as the Spirit. If you want to know the general direction the Spirit will be going today, you can bet on love. If you're going to walk with Him, we will be walking toward love, service, forgiveness, and everything else that fits the character and mind of Christ. If you keep this in mind, you won't be surprised when He takes you in the direction of service and sacrifice. You'll see it coming. Not only will you react less strongly against it, but eventually you will actually desire it. If that happens, you will find yourself receiving some of the righteousness for which we hope. Galatians 5.5 5. Be prepared to be filled with thankfulness and joy. Number three, follow the Spirit's desires, not your fleshes. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18. It's kind of an odd saying, so that you are not to do whatever you want. It's easy to think that means the flesh will want to do one thing, and the spirit will want to do another, and you'll always be full of some constant bickering disagreement between the spirit and the flesh. That's not what it means. The spirit doesn't compete with the flesh like that. In these verses, you and the flesh are the same thing. Paul says it this way to emphasize how rooted the flesh is in your experience of yourself. Many of our desires are rooted in our bodily experiences. Our body is a good invention of God. But when it is disordered by sin, it works against us. And it is loud. It's like the spirit is on audio and the flesh is on video. The flesh throws a screaming tantrum, using all of our disordered bodily systems in its service. 
It uses our instincts, hormones, drives, brain structure, and reflexes to overload our minds and wills, directing us toward their most expedient gratification. Yet the voice of the Spirit is there. It isn't loud. It doesn't huff and puff. But it is clear and steady, speaking through the microphone of the conscience. In 1 Kings chapter 19, God taught a prophet named Elijah about his voice. He did it at a time when Elijah's flesh was screaming at God because he felt like everyone was trying to kill him. This is how God responded. Then the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. This is where we get the idea of the still, small voice of God. And this is what the voice of the Spirit sounds like most of the time. The flesh will rage like a whirlwind, shake you like an earthquake, or burn through you like a forest fire. But the Spirit doesn't talk like that. He just simply, quietly, but absolutely clearly says, That's not what I want. I want this. You will find that it conflicts with the tantrum of compulsion that rages inside you. It will humiliate your pride and seem unconcerned with your fears. His voice will seem like a gentle whisper, but it will be clear and almost self-evidently true. It expresses the Spirit's desire and always challenges us to trust God in some way. Finally, when you accept it, a deep peace will set in below the tremor of your fears. If you respond to His desires, you will find yourself experiencing the opposite of what the flesh warned would happen, because the flesh is always exaggerating and bluffing. You'll find that the Spirit's desires lead to life, peace, and joy. You'll come to see your pride as disposable and destructive, and you'll recognize that your fears were controlling and shrinking you. You'll find the tantrums of the flesh getting weaker and your own conscience getting firmer, before long, you'll find that more and more the you of the flesh is weakening before the growing influence of a you that is increasingly in step with the Spirit. This is the growth of spiritual substance, real godliness. This is true spirituality. This transformation follows obedience, which begins with responding to the Spirit's desires. You'll stumble at times, but God has revealed himself in Christ in the Bible and created the fellowship of the church in order to help you figure it out. He is a patient and long-suffering teacher. As time goes on, you'll find it gets easier and more rewarding to respond to the Spirit's desires, but not safer. It will always seem like dying, and it has always been the way to life. Number four, admit what you know by the Spirit. We need to admit to ourselves what we really do know about God that the flesh wants us to deny. It may seem like walking in the Spirit is where our list should end. What could we need to do beyond that? Being mature in Christ requires more than just yielding to the Spirit's promptings as situations arise. 
We need his overall education in God's Word and in Christ. Responding to the Spirit's desires is an internal and improvisational discipline connected to our conscience. Admitting what we already know in Christ is also an act of faith and conscience. However, it has less to do with responding to the moment's convictions and more to do with acknowledging what we are taught in Christ, what we have always actually known but didn't want to acknowledge. When it comes to living as followers of Jesus, it's not a matter of reading the sheet music and performing every note perfectly. Walking in step with the Spirit is more like performing in a jazz ensemble. The notes aren't all written out for us. God wants us to transform our minds to make us musicians who not only have mastered the needed technical skills, but are also able to improvise and adapt in the moment alongside companions who are contributing their own improvisations. We need to know not just the notes on the page, but also the feel of the music, the personalities and skills of our fellow musicians, and where we collectively are aiming to go. And all of that knowledge needs not just to be retrievable data in our heads, but known in our fingertips to the degree that we can react in real time to make something fluid, expressive, and exquisite. Beyond giving momentary convictions, the Spirit teaches us over time what is good, true, noble, excellent, beautiful, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable, and praiseworthy. Philippians 4, verse 8. It is this knowledge of God and His truth that allows us to navigate the situations of our lives wisely and beautifully. But this is not just a process of requiring information. It requires cooperation on our part. We have to admit that God's Word is true, that it is good, and that we know it even though our flesh doesn't want to know it. Fear and pride can thrive only in the state of moral and spiritual denial. It is important to remember that the flesh doesn't capitalize only on our disordered lower drives and instincts. Sin has disordered every part of us. This includes our mind and patterns of thought. The flesh doesn't want to know what God plainly reveals, especially in His Word and in His Christ. That is why the next verses say, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 23. Don't miss that first line. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Our minds are constantly obsessed with making sin more complicated or less vile than it is. Self-justification and self-deception are our only hope of maintaining self-gratification. So we typically pretend that obvious injustice and wickedness are excusable and negligible. Every action, no matter how vile, has some extenuating consideration or enlightened explanation. If we cannot make evil sound good, then we can at least cover it in a fog of confusion, or we can accuse others of judging us and claim that they are guilty of the greater offense. Or we can act philosophical by questioning the foundations of reality and, like Pilate, ask, What is truth? John chapter 18, verse 38. God's Spirit burns away this obscuring fog of the mind 
and confronts us with what we have always really known but didn't want to admit. Our failure to see is not an understandable limitation. It's a moral deficiency. It's a vigorous rebellion against reality. This is why Jesus says the work of the Spirit is to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. John chapter 16, verse 8. The word translated as prove here is also translated as convict, which means to contradict and condemn our self-deception in a way that makes our rebellion and guilt obvious. This is one of the Spirit's main roles, and He is unyielding in it. If we have the Spirit, He will continually press on us what we know but don't want to. He knows that we desperately need the moral and spiritual clarity. It is the only thing that can restore our conscience and reorder our loves. It's the only thing that can allow us to see the meaning and depth of His Word and the glory of Christ. The Spirit loves the truth and knows both its value and our need of it. His divine love compels Him to long to give you this gift of sight that comes from faith. He knows that clarifying moral truth through deep conviction is a necessary step toward growing holy love in us. God's truth and real self-knowledge are necessary components to the mind of Christ and indispensable to virtue. So, as the Spirit leads us to what God has spoken and shown about Himself, we need to admit that we know it. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. When we respond to the Spirit's conviction and education, we will increasingly learn to identify the presence and work of the flesh— we will be more aware of lust and pride. We will recognize controlling fears, unforgiveness, envy, bitterness, rage, laziness, gluttony, and excessive indulgence for what they are. We will see not just outright wickedness, but also how good things are controlling us in ways they shouldn't. This will help us see our need to escape diversion and embrace spiritual discipline, which we'll talk about in chapters 9 and 10. For our purpose here, we need to see a simple and difficult truth. Living in the Spirit means becoming an executioner of the flesh. Godliness is not only a positive pursuit, it is also a negative and ferocious one. We tend to read over the word crucified because we've heard it so many times without ever having seen an actual crucifixion. We typically think of it like children think of shooting a person when they've seen 10,000 people killed on a screen. It's a much more terrifying and brutal thing than we can imagine. I remember a combat instructor telling me, if you shoot someone at any less than 15 feet, you're going to be covered in their blood. You need to be mentally prepared for that. It makes one want to throw up. I'm sure that is something like what Roman soldiers told new recruits about crucifixion. Can you even imagine crucifying someone? Actually nailing someone to a tree to execute them? Now, imagine the person looks exactly like you and is screaming, You can't live without me. You don't even know who you are, you helpless freak. I don't deserve this. You're going to be miserable your whole life to repress me. I'll never die. Do you hear me? I'll never die. The flesh needs to die. Indwelling sin isn't a part of the real you. It's a thief, an infection, and a deformity, a perversion of you as you were made to be. It offers no symbiotic benefits. Listening to its voice isn't an act of authenticity. It is the counterfeit you. 
though it promises life, it is leading you down to death. You have to kill it before it kills you. The spirit will help you, but you have to find the ferocity, resolve, and even godly anger to participate in the work. At this point, we have to recognize one critical thing. No one is saved who is unwilling to do this. To have any honesty in trusting the crucified Christ means we have crucified, past tense, the flesh. It's not something we have to do in order to be accepted in Christ, but it is part of what it means for Christ to save us. Part of the promise of what it means to be saved is to be saved from the slavery of indwelling sin, the slavery of the flesh. Salvation isn't a buffet where you just take what you like. You can't say, I'll take some forgiveness, the feeling of being divinely loved, and the encouraging presence of God, but I'm going to pass on freedom from sin. That just doesn't appeal to me. Sin is the object of God's wrath, and it's the very thing from which He delivers us, including both its hold on our hearts and the guilt it holds over us. We cannot trust Him to save us from the guilt of our sins while simultaneously attempting to hold on to our sins and sinfulness. Yet that's what we do whenever we hide, protect, and nurture indwelling sin by not crucifying the flesh. When we do this, we are trying to accept and reject Christ at the same time. We have two opposing allegiances. Therefore, everyone who is in Christ has put and continues to put the flesh to death. It is this ferocious but gracious striving that clears the ground for all the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, and a hundred other virtues of beauty. The flesh seeks to spoil all of it. We must come to three important realizations in chasing after Christ and understanding what real faith looks like. The first realization is that we have to follow Him. The second, that we have to die with Him. Take up your cross and follow me. Most think it stops there. But the third realization is that taking up our cross means not only that we must accept execution, but that we must also be executioners. It is not a call to violence against any human person, just against the fake persona of the flesh. We are called to love our human enemies, but to be executioners of the flesh. The Spirit is handing you a blade. Tracking His Steps since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Galatians 5, verses 25 and 26. In order to live in the freedom for which Christ has set us free, we have to live in the Spirit. To live in the Spirit, we have to keep in step with Him. The key words in the verse above are by and with. If it is by God's Holy Spirit that we live in Christ's freedom, then faith looks like keeping in step with Him. Older Puritan writers talked about the frame of our hearts and the way our souls are tuned. John Owen said this about why it's so important to put the flesh to death. Sin untunes and unframes the heart itself by entangling its affections. It diverts the heart from the spiritual frame that is required for vigorous communion with God. It lays hold on the affections rendering its object to be loved and desirable, so expelling the love of the Father, so that the soul cannot say uprightly and truly to God, Thou art my portion, having something else that it loves. 
By keeping in step with the Spirit, we allow Him to retune and reframe our hearts so we can recognize the astonishing beauty of God, making Him rightly attractive to our hearts and minds. However, this process must be in keeping with the freedom given in Christ, Galatians 5, verse 1. We must willingly keep in step with Him. He will not drag us along. Owen says the Holy Spirit works in us and upon us as we are willing to be worked on. That is, He leads us in a way that preserves our liberty and free obedience to Christ. Obedience must be by faith, even if directed and empowered by God's Spirit. For the Spirit does not seek to lead us in a way that undermines His own work of forging in us virtue. The Spirit works to frame and tune our understandings, wills, conscience, and passions in a way that is in keeping with their integrity and freedom. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us. Owen says this is in order that the Spirit's work can be an encouragement, facilitating our transformation, but cannot be a reason for us to neglect the work of gracious striving toward spiritual substance. This work of the Spirit happens best when we are consistently seeking to be in step with Him throughout our day and throughout our lives. When we seek to keep in step with the Spirit, we starve the idleness of soul in which the flesh flourishes. The best way to keep weeds from growing in your garden is to position other plants and mulch around them. That is, the best way to combat weeds isn't to spend all your time plucking them out, but to do all the other things a gardener is supposed to do. Similarly, the more we attend to having the mind of Christ, growing in virtuous freedom and keeping in step with the Spirit daily, the less opportunity indwelling sin has to tempt and confuse us. The result will be humble, self-sacrificial love, or, to paraphrase Galatians 5, verse 26, we will no longer be conceited, we will no longer provoke and envy each other. All four marks of substance, self-sacrificial love, the mind of Christ, virtuous freedom, and being in step with the Spirit will take root in us and grow us into oaks of righteousness. What makes all the difference? The more securely our hearts and minds are framed and tuned to the beauty of the gospel through the Spirit, the happier we will be in Christ. It turns out that a heart of joyful and thankful worship is the best guardian against all the temptations of devils, worldliness, and indwelling sin. Yet when I said, through the Spirit, in the line above, I didn't mean it as a throwaway line. There is a difficult reality here. The work of the Spirit is usually completely intangible, yet utterly indispensable. You can come to believe there is a God who is morally serious. You may come to know that there is a moral law that you are supposed to conform to, but don't. You may decide to try very hard and even do very religious things to try to get better. John Owen called this the foolish labor of poor souls. Once our conscience has been awakened by the law, we cannot stand against the power of our convictions, so we commit ourselves to all kinds of attempts to keep sin down and be good people. But if we are strangers to the Spirit of God, all our striving is in vain. Owen says that even the most conscientious person seeking to be the best person they can possibly be is still powerless. They combat without victory have war without peace, and are in slavery all their days. They spend their strength for that which is not bread, and their labor for that which profiteth not. 
This is the saddest warfare that any poor creature can be engaged in. A soul, under the power of conviction from the law, is pressed to fight against sin, but hath no strength for the combat. They cannot but fight. They can never conquer. They are like men thrust on the swords of enemies on purpose to be slain. The law drives them on, and sin beats them back. Sometimes they think they indeed have foiled sin, when they have only raised a dust that they see it not. That is, they distemper their natural affections of fear, sorrow, and anguish, which makes them believe that sin is conquered when it is not touched. By that time they must battle it again, and the lust they thought to be slain appears to have had no wound at all. Some people don't make any effort at all to be moral, but most people want to be good in some way. Owen gives us a chillingly realistic picture of those who have been awakened to moral law without the aid of the Spirit. It is especially true of those who have heard the law of God, but do not turn in faith to the Spirit for real spiritual substance and the power to overcome the flesh. We cannot become good people on our own, especially not when we see with the mind of Christ what real goodness is. That is why everything in Christian faith is by faith through the Spirit of God. All is a gift. Creation, forgiveness, existence. Everything, including the transformation we so desperately require. All of salvation is by faith. Faith to long for real righteousness, because we trust it is real and beauty. Faith to respond to the Spirit's desires when He makes them known to us. Faith to accept and admit that we don't want to know the truth and accept his convictions in his word and in Christ. Faith to crucify the flesh with ferocity in order to be free. Faith to seek to live every hour in step with the Spirit. This doesn't mean that we will literally hear sentences from him every minute, but we can follow his interests and desires. We don't feel our way along. We believe our way along. Keep in step with the truth of the gospel. Be sensitive to God's will in your conscience and spirit, and you will be in step with him more than you might think. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 25.